1: hello and welcome to the publicly challenged podcast i'm your host luke oswald and i hope you join me on my quest for knowledge to become a better public land hunter angler and forager stick with this and who knows maybe we will learn something together okay so i'm sitting here and i am talking to gail klusterman and gail would you go ahead and introduce yourself for everybody listening
2: Sure. I am a nutritional consultant and I live in Boise, Idaho, just moved here from central Oregon. And I have an interest in foraging, which I enjoy posting about on my Instagram account for my business. And I like to share resources and tricks for people to make their food more digestible. And that is the main area of my consulting. Awesome. As well.
1: So, how, yeah. how did all of this come about? Let's kind of go into that. But before you do that, because you grew up in a pretty cool place, right? And then it's pretty cool. Yeah, pretty cool place. So, kind of give me like a background of that because that's pretty neat. And I'm guessing you probably did some, I mean, most Alaskans, anyway, that I know of, um, or at least I've talked to do foraging, right? Of some sorts. <laughs>
2: Yeah, so I'm from Kodiak, and um, Kodiak is an archipelago of islands, and both of my parents hopped around throughout the different islands with their work, and um, I hopped around a little bit too, not not as much, <laughs> but... Um, so, my dad would come back from his trips and share with us all of the things that he got to try, all of the things he would eat on his journeys and I just started to get really interested in what that was all about um, often in Kodiak, we had shortages of certain things that are more common you know around here, and so I just found it, um, delightful to be able to include things from the yard and things from the forest and things from the beach in with our meals. And, um, that's kind of what got me started foraging.
1: That's awesome. So then what led you to the field that you're in now and what you're doing?
2: I would say that there's a few reasons for it. One would definitely be, um, conversations with my dad. When I was a kid, he was pretty interested in nutrition. Um, And then I started having a lot of issues with food sensitivities. And so I just um, started exploring all of my options because I felt a little bit restricted with things that I wasn't supposed to eat. And so I just started trying all kinds of different foods because I was very hungry and so I just started experimenting and cooking and and foraging was definitely a part of that
1: that's awesome I uh actually have some food sensitivities slash allergies as well and at one point I even cut your traditional grains completely out of my diet And Mm -hmm. couldn't believe the results after about a year. I no longer had allergies. I've since incorporated them back into my diet, but very gradually, minus the gluten, because that creates a problem. But what's crazy is, for the longest time, people thought I had ulcerative colitis. All the doctors Mm -hmm. I went to, and they'd look at my chart and talk to me about it and tell me that I had ulcerative colitis, when in fact Mm -hmm. I didn't. It was a gluten allergy, which was causing the ulcers and things in my intestines. So it's kind of interesting how that all ties together. And once that was cut out, that problem completely went away. No steroids any longer or any of those other things. And it's kind of crazy to think that, you know, modern medicine, they're doing all these different things and throwing drugs at it. When a lot of times your food is your medicine.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I like that you're framing it like that because often we um, tend to see it as an enemy if there's a food sensitivity issue, but um, sometimes just giving our system a break allows the option for reintroducing those foods. So, or just changing up the way that we use them.
1: Yeah. So let's kind of talk about your business and kind of what you do with your clients and and kind of walk us through that, what, what it is exactly.
2: So next ingredient is a food resources hub and it has a few different parts. I do the consulting for next ingredient. And then part of it is a podcast, which is also called next ingredient. And, um, I also sell some tea blends that I have created And so back to the consulting piece, I just work one-on-one with people and, um, we identify what their goal is together. And then I just try to help them remove anything that's keeping them from reaching their goal. So my focus nutritionally is really on optimizing bodily function. And rather than um, adhering to like a very strict diet, I try to guide people to work with the physiology that they're experiencing and then just match foods and food preparation techniques to work with what they're dealing with. So um, I try to increase the variety of foods that they're able to eat eventually as one of my long-term goals. Even if at times in the short term, things have to be removed so that healing can pop in. Um, my, one of my goals is being able to make them more resilient long-term.
1: Yeah. I think that's crazy though. Like when we talk about variety and we talk about like the monoculture of farming and the different agriculture practices out there, and so most of those foods are depleted right because the resources aren't there they're actually putting nutrients into the soil via spraying whatever on them and uh putting putting that into the food and then going into people's bodies but yet the Mm -hmm. variety is still lacking and it's lacking in Mm -hmm. nutrients that's there, which is so cool about foraging, right? Because you have this rich soil. Most of it's, you know, disturbed properly or not disturbed at all. And uh, Mm -hmm. just this great environment with a bunch of nutrients going into the soil and that food is so rich in those things that we are lacking as humans. And what we're needing, especially when, you know, there's probably over 400 or 300 different varieties out there that we could be eating and we're only eating probably yeah. like 20 or less of different types of uh types of foods.
2: It's quite stunning to start learning about all of the different types of foods that are available. Um when I first was dealing with food sensitivities, I had this I would get a lot of feedback. Well, for, I mean, I would think like, "Oh wow, I can't eat anything." And then I would often hear like, wow, Gail, you, you really can't eat anything. Can you like (laughs) you're cutting out a few foods? And then then I started realizing like, it's really just like three or four foods. It's just that those things are everywhere Mm -hmm. and in everything. And so it looks like I can't eat anything, but it's just like, that's just not the case. Like, and so that, that's really what motivated me to just start looking at my options. And there's tons of options. That's
1: the same with me though, like people, especially people at work that just have no idea what gluten even is, you know, and realize that it's, you know, wheat or barley or rye and like just those things. So wheat flour is in pretty much everything, right?
2: Right, right.
1: (laughs) And guys at work will be like it'll be popcorn or something they're making and I'll just take one piece of it or something like that. And they're like, oh, you can't eat that. What are you doing? Can you eat that?
2: I know. And they have I no know. clue.
1: And I'll, I'll try and explain it to them. But sometimes it's but like, you, yeah. there's not even a point to explaining it to some people. But it, it's funny that you say that because I can truly, truly relate to that. And then people, mm-hmm. when we go out to eat, oh, can is there anything you can even eat here after we're there for a while or something? And I'm staring at yeah. the menu, trying to figure something out. And then they're just yeah. like, Is there even anything you can eat here? Should we go somewhere else? Is that okay? What What do you want to do? And I'm like, I'll make it work wherever we are. I'm not gonna. It's really so nice. Yeah, yeah,
2: (laughs) yeah. Yeah. It's like, you know, lots of support. Yeah, but the um, something that is really appealing to me is trying to learn, like, why the food is bothering someone. Um, often we think that there's something inherently inflammatory about the food when in many cases, there's something about our own digestion that is just getting in the way of us being able to use that food. And so, um, like, like you said, some, some of the ways that our food is processed or grown. the way that it's handled makes it kind of complicates it when really like, you know, if foraging, you would just get simple food that hasn't been messed with. And so um, food isn't really the enemy. It's just more like the way that we complicate it. And then the way that we've kind of complicated our own digestive function.
1: Yeah. The gliophosphate that's on it or the... <laughs> <laughs> the atrazine or mm-hmm. whatever else, pesticides, herbicides, all the different things they spray on them or modify mm-hmm. them to do that, I think is huge. And I, I think as we go forward and more more and more people that I, I'm seeing, talking to, noticing, they're all starting to get food sensitivities. And I honestly mm-hmm. think it's our bodies are in a constant state of inflammation anyway. Mm-hmm. And I, w- I would be willing to bet to even say that probably 50% of the United States population is in a constant state of inflammation at some level, maybe not a Mm. high level, but at some level, is that kind of like what you see with pretty much every client is like a state of inflammation?
2: It could definitely be interpreted like that. Um, There is some, some inflammation that is seen as appropriate depending on the scenario, but I guess it's just a matter of if that inflammation reaches an inappropriate level, that's when it becomes noticeable. Um, and so, but yes, there's many inflammatory issues going on under the surface that eventually manifest in, in noticeably uncomfortable symptoms.
1: Can can you kind of talk about that? Let's elaborate a little bit on that
2: sure sure like what aspect of it
1: so like what what are the 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 factors and then like symptoms that would be associated with that
2: so like um i mean we could take trying to think of what would maybe be a good example Maybe I'll just like keep it general as to like what the food is, but like, just talk about this part of the digestive system. So if our intestinal lining gets irritated, say there's, um, like food isn't moving through at the right rate, um, or there's something in there that is, um, kind of corrosive, um, The the intestinal lining, it has like a pretty quick cell turnover. And so it wouldn't really be noticeable because our bodies can usually heal from minor irritations. But over time, if it just really never has the chance to get a rest and to heal and to um, build back up, they're, they're supposed to be kind of like a little shag carpet on the inside of our intestines. And over time it can just get worn down and it, I've heard it, it described as more like a tile floor <laughs> that's like a missing grout. And so, um, that would be like an example of chronic irritation that is just like eroding layers and, um, it can kind of go unnoticed for a while. But then it will um, at some point it'll reach kind of like a boiling point and manifest in um, like immune hyperreactivity reactivity or um, skin inflammation, um, those kinds of things. Whereas if it had like all of those cell types are, are very resilient. But if they just never get a rest because we're just like mistreating it, it, it at some point, it's just going to not be able to catch up and rebuild. So that's when we would actually notice symptoms. But it's been going on under the surface for a while. It's called the prodromal period of disease. So it's just kind of like the part of the iceberg that's not known or like not apparent, but it's definitely there until it reaches just like a clinical manifestation.
1: Okay. So at that point, what do we do? Like you you address that. How how does that kind of come about at that point?
2: Right. Because it's not really um, until things get out of hand that people usually seek some sort of intervention. So um, I usually try to kind of determine like how long it's been going on and like ask questions about what their typical like daily meals might look like. And just to get a sense of what they're putting in their digestive system. And then, um, and like, also you you mentioned earlier when we were talking about TBIs, um, traumatic brain injuries, Often have a connection with gut inflammation. It's just like um kind of a reaction because of the communication between our gut and our brain. And so I try to get a sense of head injuries or like really stressful events um, to just get a picture of what their digestive function might be looking like. And then I just try to remove stressors. With them one by one. And so, um, it, that looks like all kinds of things like working on eating very slowly and chewing thoroughly. Um, sometimes it has to do with preparation techniques. And so a lot of times people get to the point where they can't handle a lot of raw produce. Um, and so I'll encourage them to cook or, um, create broths with their produce um rather than trying to force down things that might be difficult to digest and um i encourage foods that are mucilaginous and so they're mucus forming and they can help protect mucosal barriers like the intestinal lining so there's all different kinds of things we use and it's it's just very customized to what the person is dealing with and i usually try to do short term things that are going to like help them get more comfortable in a few days, like if they're just like really suffering. But then I try to overlay that on a more long-term approach so that they can actually be healing their function.
1: I love that. So when you're doing that and you're doing these foods and now that you've gotten into the foraging aspect, is that something Mm -hmm. that you've incorporated with your clients at all? Or is that something that's kind of just on your level of recipes right now?
0: Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue. Brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors. Every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.
2: So, I mean, I definitely have a lot of things that I just do for myself, but, um, I do try to share those things with clients if they're in a place where they're interested in that. Mm -hmm. Um, if somebody finds themselves like in a busy urban setting and they don't have a lot of foraging, um, in their life. I try to connect them with a nearby apothecary just because there's so many um, amazing herbs and resources yeah. at places like that. Um, but yeah, like in my own in my own spice cupboard, I try to have a few forage things um, with an easy reach for my own cooking and so, broths are usually yeah. one of my favorite things.
1: So let's go into that a little bit and talk about the forage sure. things and kind of what you've gotten into and what you find is like super beneficial and, and how mm-hmm. why.
2: Why? Yeah. Well, okay, one of my favorite things ever is nettles. Mm. And um you know, we're talking about inflammation and immune hyperreactivity. We're talking about um Molecules being able to go through the intestinal lining that aren't really supposed to go through into the bloodstream. And so um, I really like to look for things that have a calming effect. And something that can happen with intestinal inflammation is histamine reactivity, like an, an inappropriate histamine response. And so um redness, itchiness, hives, those kinds of things that we associate with allergies and reacting, um, to different things, um, has a big tie in with histamine. And, um, if the intestinal lining is compromised, we often do not break down excess histamine in our body because of the way that it's uh, manuf- there's this enzyme that's manufactured. One of the places is in the intestinal lining. And so if we aren't manufacturing that we will have just like an inappropriate histamine response. And I say all this because nettles, um, have, um, they're like a natural antihistamine. They have quercetin in them. And so it can help kind of, um, dampen reactivity. Mm-hmm. Or like soothe those allergic experiences. So nettles is like one of my favorite things and it's just like so easy to incorporate into teas and broths or you know, fry it up, whatever people like to do with yeah, nettles. Make so. it in the
1: greens or actually I just saw that uh Alan Burgo was using it, I believe he chopped it and then put it in a bag and rolled it. Or beat it. I'm not sure which way he did it. Okay, but to basically break up the, uh, I know I'm going to mess this up. Tri- trichomes or something. The little, basically mm, the spikes mm-hmm. that are on it. Yeah, um, those
2: little hairs.
1: And and by doing that, it it pulverized it enough to where those broke off of it, and you were able to eat them basically raw. And, and process them through your body without having to worry about getting all those little spikes in your mouth, yeah, and, yeah.
2: the irritation yeah. there's I think they're like hollow hairs that have some sort of um like fluid in them that it, we're actually reacting to like what's inside the hollow
1: mm-hmm. hairs, yeah, so but yeah. anyway,
2: I've seen like pesto that would be raw, but it's like you said, it's just like parade
1: yep so that's actually chopped. That. yeah it's chopped and like put on a salad and you're able it's palatable at that point to where you can eat it and your body doesn't uh, have any reaction like that so it's pretty cool yeah. to see that i've never seen anybody very. that had raw nettles other than you know uh putting them in a pesto so that's pretty cool
2: yeah <laughs> that is very cool i'll have to try that
1: um So what other kind of things are you incorporating or like when you mentioned (laughs) mucinolagis. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. To to my mind comes like uh, knotweed, you know, to where it produces Mm. like that slime on it. Is that something you've kind of incorporated or uh, no? I
2: have not had the privilege yet of using knotweed, but it's definitely on my bucket list. Um. Let's see. I mean, I use a like a blend of different foraged and cultivated things. And so as I think of mucilaginous things, a few cultivated items are coming up like okra, um, licorice root, slippery elm, bark, marshmallow root. Um, Yeah, those are some of the ones that come to mind. And so they just... um, will form a little slime that's like, it's kind of like aloe vera, but for your intestines.
1: That's awesome. So how yeah. are you utilizing those then? Is it in broths mm-hmm. mostly or what are you doing? Because I know you kind of spoke a little bit when you were talking and uh, you talked about uh, the the magic of broths and how wonderful they are.
2: Yes, I'm, I'm really in a broth. Um, for the mucilaginous items, I would probably be doing those as an infusion, like a marshmallow root infusion um overnight in a jar of water. Um that's probably like one of my favorite go-tos. But as far as broths, um I don't do as much of the mucilaginous items in those, but it's like a way to extract benefit from plants without having to deal with the fiber which can often be um, kind of a burden if somebody's dealing with an acute health issue. And so it's like a way of gathering um, chlorophyll minerals from the plants without having your digestive system, um, like the complications of fiber if if your digestive system is taxed. So my broths, um, I do a variety of mushrooms. Um, I really like scour rush, horsetail. Um, I always make it salty. I like a little bit of apple cider vinegar or lemon juice in there. I do all kinds of different stuff. I do, I keep a bag of scraps in my freezer that's like Wash scraps that I just throw in a bag in my freezer, and then when it gets full, I just make broth
1: with it. (laughs) So is it, and then I end up. I'm sorry. Go ahead.
2: No, go ahead. I was just gonna say, is it always
1: vegetables or and um, like forage items that are vegetables and and different plants, or is it uh, is there like bone broth? Try to
2: include. I definitely try to make it a bone broth. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like one of one of the bags is like a veggie scrap bag, and then I'll throw in like a bag of bones <laughs> with it. Um, but yeah, at that point, then I add seasonings and um, dried things like scour rush and stuff that are in my spice cupboard, and then it all gets strained out, and then it's just that yummy broth.
1: Yeah, that's that's cool. So when you, I gotta ask you. So when you're doing your bones for your bone broth, how are you preparing your bones? Are you taking them and like uh, oiling them or rubbing them with anything first or seasoning them and baking them in the oven for any period of time and then utilizing them? Or how are you doing it?
2: It really depends on the scenario and where the bones came from. Sometimes I will be dealing with... um like a roasted chicken and it's just the, like the whole, um, cart, you know, just like the leftover bones and everything from the chicken. Mm -hmm. And so I will just like, it's already been cooked Mm -hmm. for a couple hours in the oven. And so I, at that point would just throw that in to my stock pot along with every, all the scraps and everything. But if I'm starting with just fresh bones like from a butcher i like to roast them first and then once they're roasted i'll throw them in the um the stock pot and go from there although i have skipped the roasting and then i've cooked it longer but i think it tastes better when they're roasted
1: i think it tastes better when they're roasted and i also think you get less of that like gross looking like film.
2: Yeah. It's less get. gross looking. Mm-hmm.
1: What, what do you do to like, if you do it the other way, what do you do to eliminate that film? Or say you're can? do you ever can your broth?
2: I have not done traditional canning for my broth because I just use it up.
1: Okay. Cause I've pressure canned quick. it, but I never get a clear like broth and I've tried taking egg white and doing it in there to like emulsify it and have it collect mm. and then scoop out the egg white. That does. Mm-hmm. Okay. But I find like ultra filtration before I do it. But then sometimes I feel like I'm Mm -hmm. taking some of the beneficial things out of it while I'm filtering it because, you know, you see some of those good oils and fats that get collected in that filter. And I'm like, oh, I kind of want those Mm -hmm. in there, you know?
2: Yeah. (laughs) I like to leave fat in my broth. I never remove that. Um, But sometimes there will be like some solids that sink to the bottom. and I usually don't feel very eager to consume those, and I just kind of like consume the top.
1: Pour it off, yeah. Pour off, pour, uh-huh. and leave those in there. That's what I do too. Mm-hmm. Although I feel like, the, I guess the ultimate measure of a chef, right, is the fact that like they can get a perfect broth while I still have <laughs> that yeah. slight sediment in the bottom of the jar. But it doesn't. I have bottom. not <laughs>
2: reached that. L- like, yeah, I have not reached that level.
1: <laughs> I'm gonna I work admire on that. It
2: though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Um, I am. I have found that my technique um, is fairly casual. Like I'm not really a perfectionist um, just because I feel like I get more accomplished like in my own (laughs) meal (laughs) approach. Like I feel like I will actually do the project or like, you know, do more if I don't try to make it perfect and i and i just like try to get it done so that's kind of my own approach but like there are those people who have the the broth all dialed in and i admire it
1: <laughs> yeah so i gotta ask you when you um like throw a chicken carcass or bones that are already cooked in, do you ever break them first to try and get more of that yeah. marrow out or what do you do
2: Yeah. I like to break them up. I also like to, um, add in a little something aesthetic, like the the apple cider vinegar and just help, um, break that down a little more. The the roasting really helps break it down as well, but yeah. Yeah. Breaking them up a little bit for sure. Do you do that? I do. do. do Not all the
1: time, but, um, sometimes yeah i I do that and i feel like i get more of that marrow in there and it actually Mm. makes the flavor a richer flavor and and i feel like i'm getting so much more from it when i do that very
2: good yeah i really like bone marrow for that Mm -hmm.
1: and so when you're doing this and obviously you're doing it for yourselves but do you do it for Mm -hmm. your clients as well as like the you know the healing power broth you're kind of talking about that as far as if they have issues is that kind of a a common practice to get them relief and and get them going?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, before, like at the beginning, when I was consulting, um, I used to do food prep along with it. And since moving to Boise, I haven't included that, but I still would like to someday, uh, figure out how to incorporate that into it because I really miss actually preparing food for clients. Um, and so, broth was a thing that I used to love to do because it's like just an amazing vehicle that you can customize for the needs of the client. And um, often, when somebody's in an acute stage of illness, like the last thing they're going to do is a lengthy kitchen project. Like they really do need someone bringing them a tray of food. And um, I hope to find a way to incorporate that in for clients here in Boise. But, um, yeah, I, I'm not doing that currently. I just do it for myself and my family.
1: (laughs) That's okay though. Mm -hmm. Um, so when, um, when, when you are doing that or like tailoring the nutrition towards your clients and things like that, are you looking at like certain foods and hormone levels and different things and, 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 needs and trying to tailor that to them and can you kind of give some examples of like foods that would work with certain things or or uh how, sure. how that would go
2: Okay, sure. Um let me think of an example. Um something that I work with quite a bit is helping women to regulate their menstrual cycles and there are a lot of ways that you can use food for that. Um and so say somebody's estrogen it is just like off the charts and their progesterone is low. Um there you can use food to bring estrogen down in in an appropriate ratio with progesterone and so one of the examples of that would be using carrot fiber, raw mm-hmm. carrot fiber and um it will actually bind with estrogen and help clean it out. And so, um, because you, you want to be able to use the hormone, but you want to be able to get rid of it and, um, your body will produce new estrogen. Um, you don't want estrogen just recirculating. And so one example that, you know, carrot would be an, ex- an excellent example of that. Another example would be, um, certain kinds of mushroom fibers. Um, one I know for sure is white button mushrooms. If they're well cooked, they will do the same thing in actually moving estrogen out. Um, bamboo shoots will as well. I'm sure there are a lot of other foods that do it, but those are kind of my three go-to.
1: Nice. That's awesome. So like, I know because I know somebody who also does some things like that. And so like there's foods for like your follicular cycle, you know, phase Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. all these different phases of your body. Mm -hmm. Certain foods react better towards those things to try and give you Mm -hmm. what your body demands and needs during those Mm -hmm. different cycles. Is there things like that for males as well? Or I mean, obviously they don't have the same cycles like that, but they still Mm -hmm. have different phases of, uh, Life and stuff like that, is there things that you work with as far as foods for male clients as well?
2: You know, I have not had any male clients who have requested help with their hormones, but um certainly it would be worth looking into f- um, foods and you know lifestyle hacks that support test testosterone um, and also. I mean, we usually think of estrogen as being a, an issue that women deal with, but in our, in our world today, men also are dealing with estrogen issues. And so some of the same tricks that I would use for women to manage estrogen, I would also recommend for male hormone health. Right. I mean, so, especially Yeah. Cause we're all able to be exposed to Estrogen, well, in the form of xenoestrogens, especially so. So, chemical forms of estrogen that our cells think is estrogen and it behaves like estrogen. Which so, like is that's a that's everywhere, an issue right? Anyone. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: So, when you when you talk to clients and stuff, do you try and figure out like? Types of soaps and things like that they're using if they're getting into that or doing doing that as far as estrogen because there's so many of those things that are like hormone blockers or replicators that are out there.
2: Mm-hmm. Is that a thing? Yeah, there's definitely endocrine disruptors in body products, and even though my focus is food, um, if somebody is like, say, a client comes to me and they're having an issue with cysts and it's Dangerous. Um, estrogen is tissue forming. Estrogen has many jobs that it does in the body, but if it doesn't get cleared out appropriately and regularly, um, it just recirculates and will f- it builds tissue here and there. And so, cysts and um, polyps and fibroids, for example, are all tissue formations that have a link with estrogen recirculating. And so, um, if somebody came to me in an acute estrogen dominance state, I would, I'm sure that I would bring up lifestyle things that they could do just about reducing their exposure to excessive xenoestrogens. Yeah. in their environment as well as their food. So
1: that's crazy. We probably go into like a whole big thing on that, but <laughs> yes,
2: yeah. Estrogen is like a lot. It's a lot to learn about.
1: Um, so let's kind of pivot for a minute and kind of get back to sure. the food and um, like your foraging journey. Um, what yeah. are some of the things that like you've taken away and like really discovered that are amazing and like utilized in some of your Dishes that you make because I've looked at some of the stuff you get you prepare and uh, it looks pretty good, like, makes me want to try it. So,
2: I'm glad to hear that. I mean, I do try to like, I was talking to one of my sisters, um, and she was reminding me that when I first started cooking, (laughs) like, she told me that I had removed myself from taste. Like in the interest of finding things that were healthy to eat, she was like, Gail, you, you need to, (laughs) you need to reacquaint yourself with taste, you know, like your focus is like too physiological. Um, anyway, I think now I'm like slightly more able to produce things that are appealing as well as healthy, or at least that has been my, my goal. Um, and so I I mean, I try to just like get people to get excited about food. And so as a means to heal their bodies. And so I mean, I try to like always be posting ideas for like how to make things that are delicious, like in a in a hassle-free manner, because like I said, I, I don't like to, I mean, I enjoy the process. Of doing like a lengthy kitchen project, but in reality, like if a client is dealing with a health issue, like they probably need something that's like fairly simple. Yep. And so, yeah, I'm always trying to like yeah. figure out ways to just make it accessible and get people excited about it.
1: My wife tells me a lot all, all the time because I am – I love food and I am probably – I'm definitely a fat kid at heart and maybe even a morbidly obese kid at heart because (laughs) I try to always take things over the top. And when I do that, it's like this ingredient, this ingredient, this ingredient, this ingredient. My wife's like, "Yeah, don't need all that. Just eat it. I'm like, you're right. And it's true. It's true. But some things, if you're making a dish, you want it to be fantastic and in order to do that you have to have all these other accoutrements with it you know like to yes. go with it and and it's like yes but honestly no simpler is better probably healthier less complex easier for your body to break down and digest like all these different things
2: possibly
1: and so definitely yeah. food uh food i love food but sometimes simpler is better just lightly seasoned meat, enjoy the flavor, the profile of the meat and how you cook that meat. Yeah, And then just a the vegetable, you know, it doesn't have to be fancy all the time.
2: <laughs> mm. Yeah. And I think that something with harvesting and using wild food is that it really does taste so good, like without too much extra effort. And so like, I think if we are used to, Eating complicated food that has been processed. Um, we don't really know how like simple food tastes and how wonderful it can be. Yep. But like the other day I was eating a red bell pepper and I was just like, there's really no substitute for a fresh red bell pepper. Like it's just a great flavor experience. And you kind of get removed from that if you if you don't get to um, just eat simple whole foods.
1: Yeah. And like, what's crazy is like when the chlorophylls break down, like you get a totally different profile and like those sugars start to develop in it. And like a red pepper is just so much sweeter than a it green really pepper. Is. Like you could taste the chlorophyll, like the difference in the in the two peppers. It's, and it's the same pepper. Yes. That's what's crazy. Yeah,
2: green has a taste for <laughs> yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah. And that's
1: like, I love heat and jalapenos, but I hate a, a raw jalapeno if it's not with something because I don't like uh, like that green taste. Just
2: that green taste.
1: And people make fun of me all the time. They're like, you love spicy foods, you love jalapenos, but you can't just eat a jalapeno. And I'm like, no, I don't like it by itself but if you give me yeah. onions cilantro and tomato with it like now we're talking
2: it'll work it'll yeah. work yeah
1: put that on anything yeah.
2: there is so much nuance of flavor with simple foods
1: yeah so um is there any other things that uh you've kind of cooked or like just super memorable that you forage and it's like amazing
2: I mean other people have hunted (laughs) and I've benefited (laughs) from it um I mean venison is probably like one of my favorite all-time wild foods um I love a venison stew I love the simplicity of that um and I mean I'm really into seafood sea vegetables and um Being from Kodiak, I was, I got to be exposed to like a lot of different seafood types, sea vegetables. And um, I think that like a mushroom and seaweed broth can be really, really, really good if it's prepared strategically. And that's probably one of my favorite things to me.
0: good.
1: (laughs) <laughs> like make a soup yeah. or a broth out of it yeah
2: yes yeah um the other day a friend gave us a venison roast and i um added a little extra water in with the in with the cooking process just to have a little le- leftover broth and then i added things to that broth the next day Uh, including a little bit of seaweed and some mushrooms and stuff. And it just took me right back to Kodiak and it just tasted like Kodiak Island. It's such a good combo. That's
1: awesome. So it just brings to mind like my kids devour venison in my Mm. house. And like you could have a $100 tomahawk steak, ribeye steak, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. give the kids a choice between that and a backstrap. And they would take that back strap from that deer. Back
2: strap is All the, top the time. Notch. They would take that. Oh, yeah. yeah.
1: I actually like the inner loins more. The inner oh, loins okay. are amazing. And those never, ever, ever, ever hit the freezer in my house. Normally, it's like the night of that deer being harvested. Mm-hmm. Those get cooked pretty much the same night. And they either go on the Traeger with a little bit of olive oil and just some light sea salt. And... uh Let them go for a little bit on there or right into the pan with a little bit of butter and a little bit of rosemary in the pan. And that's it. Rosemary goes
2: so well with that. Yeah. Um what are your kids' thoughts on consuming organ meats? Have they have they They discovered the joys?
1: No. No. In fact, I don't do too much. Especially uh, it's kind of okay. I shouldn't say I don't consume organ meats because I do. Unfortunately, on my wild game, I don't consume them. And it's one of the things that I think if there's CWD that's kind of prevalent in my area. So with that that being said, chronic wasting disease, that's a whole entire podcast in itself. But with that being said, pumps and filters tend to have a concentration of that. So I don't really... Keep them. You avoid the think, liver and whatnot. Yeah, okay. so I think I will start keeping those, but I will, um, I will definitely end up getting the deer tested, and then obviously disposing of it if it comes back positive. If it's negative, then mm. start consuming them and utilizing. Because I actually just talked to Alan Burgo about some really cool ways to start doing. It. In fact, it was an episode that just aired last week um, about all kinds of just different ways to prepare those, those organs. So pretty cool. Yeah. So I'm kind of excited to try and do those things now.
2: (laughs) I've really, like, I grew up eating, um, all manner of organ meats, um, because of my dad, my mom was not as much of a fan, but she tolerated it. And, um, I wasn't as much of an enthusiast, when I started like giving it thought as I got a little older, I was like, I don't think these are like, I mean, you know, when I was like a teenager, I was like, I think it's kind of weird that we eat liver in our house or whatever, you know, but like, I've definitely gotten back into it and have really um, gained an appreciation for how densely nutritious, yes, especially yes. liver is. And just um, the thought that, the liver requires a lot of nutrients to perform all of its functions. And so it will store those nutrients in a healthy animal. It will store those nutrients right where they're needed. Yeah. And um, then when we consume the liver, like we get to use those nutrients. So it's just like per square inch. It's like the densest food. Yeah. It's that kinda, you could ever want. Kind
1: of gross, but it brings to mind when animals give birth and then the mother eats the placenta as it comes out. Mm-hmm. But it's like they're regaining all those things that they need through that. I mean, that's how it works. Absolutely. Cool.
2: <laughs> Very, yeah. Yeah. yeah all that replacement that is needed for the next stage for sure.
1: Absolutely. Um, one of the things I was going to ask you about is your cookbook that you have
2: oh yeah well I just have a little ebook that I offer on my website and it actually just pops up if you go on my website but um I also have it on its own page on my site in case you know in case it gets exited which I usually do when I go on a website and something pops (laughs) up I immediately exit it without reading you know I can't be bothered so um <laughs> I do have it on a page as well, and it's just a few recipes it's the ebook is called Easy to Eat and the purpose behind it is just to share the idea that um if you have any sort of pain or discomfort or stress associated with consuming a meal, these might be things that are more easily accessible and so my um focus is really to just remove whatever the layers are between you and the food that you need and so this is this is one offering that i can share and it's easy to find on my site
1: okay so speaking of that um it's been awesome talking to you but before we go can you tell everybody where they can find you where can they find uh your podcast episodes all that good stuff social media
2: Okay, sure. Yeah. So if you are an Instagram user, you can follow me. It's just at next ingredient. Um my website is called next com. The podcast is just called next ingredient and it's on Apple and Spotify and SoundCloud and Stitcher, etc. So it's easy to find. Um and this spring I did something new which was to participate in the Spring into Greens challenge. Um it's just a Facebook group that I was a part of and I offered meal modifications for people who don't do well with raw fiber, raw greens. And so I was just on there as kind of support for people who believe in greens but they don't do well with them and so it it was just like here's additional options um so if you're interested in that it's a challenge that happens every spring and it's called spring into greens challenge on facebook so
1: yeah gail i appreciate you coming on it's been so good talking to you and uh thank you so much for coming on it was
2: thank you thank you so much for having me i've been really looking forward to it
1: that's awesome it's been fun very
0: I'm Will Cooper, host of HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast. For even more content, be sure to watch the original films from HuntStand Presents on the Waypoint TV channel every Tuesday at 10 p.m. Eastern. Visit waypointtv.com to learn more. I'm Will Cooper, host of HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast. If you haven't already, download the free Waypoint TV app to listen to our podcast and watch the original films from HuntStand Presents anywhere, anytime, and on any device.